Welcome to Lost in the Movies. This week we are covering another Sight and Sound film, a film that placed highly on the Sight and Sound 2022 Greatest Films of All Time list. Uh, last week we covered Jean Dielman, the number one film on that list. Now we're covering the number seven film on that list, Beau Travail. And the reason we're covering it is because it's the next film on the list that I hadn't covered before uh, in any capacity for my site. So here it is, a podcast on this film for the first time. So this film, to go over the history of, of, of you know where it placed on the sight and sound list, it was released after the 92 list. Uh, this list comes out you know every 10 years in the second, third year of a decade. So 92, 2002, 2012, 2022, etc. And in this case... It didn't come out till 99 or 98 or 99. And then in 2002, no votes um, were cast for it on either the critics or the director's list. In 2012, it did pop up. There was a three-way tie for number 78 on the critics list and a 16-way tie for director's list uh, number 91. So what that amounted to is 21 critics had voted for it and seven directors had voted for it. Um, kind of amazing that 21 critics could vote for it and it would still pop up way down at number 78 on that list. But they had expanded the pool quite a bit at that point. In 2022, they expanded the pool even more, but the film shot way up. Number seven, obviously, on the critics list. That's why it's here. And there was a four-way tie on the director's list to place it at number 14. So what that meant is 106 critics voted for it in 2022 and 28 directors voted for it. So quite a showing there. And I was curious about this film. You know, I hadn't seen it before. I'd heard it referenced. I'd seen the ending of it in a documentary at one point. So I kind of knew where it was going. Although the context of that um, was kind of different once I once I actually watched the film. So without further ado, let's let's get to the movie. Although actually there is one more um, interruption I want to <laughs> I want to make before I get there. Um, I do want to mention some of my recent work on my site, lostinthemovies.com. I published a piece on Friday called Farewell to Netflix DVD. Just a quick rundown of my history with that service, how how it's, you know, gone now. And uh, I subtitled this piece, uh, The End of an Era. And it really does feel like that. And it's, it's funny how this corresponds so neatly to my own, um, public, uh, discussion of film and TV because I'm going to be shifting more to a patron exclusive approach soon. So, you know, this was uh, a kind of an opportunity to reflect on the past 15 years of my online work as well as this particular service, which many people don't even know that Netflix was still sending out DVDs. They were, but uh, they're not. So uh, that was that. And then I also put up a Patreon roundup. For the month of September 2023, Patreon Roundup exclusive, more thoughts on Barbenheimer and podcast episode 100 feedback plus advanced Twin Peaks character series entry. So this was just a roundup of the stuff I put up on Patreon um, in the past few weeks. I I covered most of that in the Jean Dielman episode, um, you know, in terms of the specific Patreon links. But this was kind of my write up and my just pointing my public uh, readers to what I'd published on that site. Uh, patreon.com slash lost in the movie and then also on patreon i put up uh, you know it just in time for this uh, a character study for number 24 on the list and i won't reveal who that is because i always like to keep it a surprise 
But uh, for patrons, you can find out not just who that is, but uh, read the full entry on them. So obviously, we're getting pretty high up there in the prominence of these characters, where I write up, uh, you know, their journey through the series, their what they the, what they reveal to us about Twin Peaks, kind of detail their individual scenes, talk about some of the deleted scenes that. Uh, you know, this was something I added after the fact for this one because I realized after I put it up, I hadn't talked about where this character was in the script that didn't end up showing up in the final episode. So I kind of went through all the scripts that are all online and put that there. So you can check that out too. So, all right, that was quite a digression from uh, my introduction to Botrevi, but uh, here we are. And uh, one more thing I do want to mention, this is just a solo episode, me discussing this particular film. But uh, if you want a discussion, you know, the Jean D'Elman episode last week was uh, not just uh, featuring a guest, Ashley Brandt, who uh, talked about that film with me, but also it's a very long episode. It's two hours long. So if you want something, you know, the most meaty discussion you can get of a sight and sound uh, poll, number one entry, check that episode out. And then uh, you can also listen to this a little shorter, just me alone, but uh, definitely a film worth discussing as well. C'était un plateau aride qui se terminait en terrasse. Alors seulement on nous apprend l'élégance dans l'uniforme et sous l'uniforme. Et les plis, ça concourt justement à cette élégance. On raconte beaucoup d'histoires à propos de ce terrible cul-de-sac. Le diable, les esprits malins, le mauvais œil. Oui, t'aimes-toi. Méfie-toi de lui. Satan avait séduit son monde. Il a tiré les regards. Il cache bien son jeu. Prends garde à ce que tu dis, Gabi. La médisance, ça n'est pas inscrit dans le code d'honneur du légionnaire. Ça va juste mon action. Like John Dalman, Beau Travai is the story of somebody who lives by a kind of a strict regimen, a strict discipline and order in their life, who is unsettled by a passion they feel and uh, tries to expunge that by uh, hurting somebody who makes them feel that. Now, it's funny to describe those two films that way, because I don't think the characters are would you'd necessarily think they're that similar but there is that element of uh of, of similarity there and it's funny too because the styles of the film are so completely different Jean Dalman you know you have the static shots uh never a moving camera long takes of a woman moving around a very limited location in Beau Travail you have these very subjective swooning shots of uh, these these characters in close-up, their bodies kind of abstracted, moving around in this uh, training ground in uh, Djibouti. And it's interesting to kind of see the two films in that, in that uh, way, kind of back 
not exactly back to back, but you know, back to back in terms of how I'm covering them for this series. And I'm going to be talking about Billy Budd quite a bit in this review. Uh, we'll save most of that for later, but uh, there's a Herman Melville quote, which I thought applies really well to this film, which is passion and passion in its profoundest is not a thing demanding a palatial stage whereon to play its part. Down among the groundlings, among the beggars and rakers of the garbage, profound passion is enacted, and the circumstances that provoke it, however trivial or mean, are no measure of its power. Now, I love that, uh, not so much, I think, in terms of the general milieu of this film. I think by this point, you know, 100-something years into cinema, we've established that, you know, you can find passion anywhere in terms of, you know, social class or anything like that. I think it's more interesting just in terms of the specific character in this film who uh, is experiencing this passion because he is a character who doesn't exhibit it um, outwardly. But it's a sort of a, a throbbing intensity within him that that finally gets released at the end of the film. So before we get too far ahead of ourselves, uh, let's talk about you know what this film is about, who's who the characters are, and so forth. Uh, it's a film that was initially inspired by a TV project in France, where Claire Denis was uh, contacted to shoot a film about foreignness. Uh, that was just the general concept. And uh, it was supposed to be a little bit, I think, of a travelogue type thing. I think they were assuming documentary. And I think she did get the funding from this channel, um, although she traveled very far afield from what they had in mind, because she ended up shooting this fictional piece. And it was very kind of free associational from what I can gather. So, you know, they said foreign. She thought foreign, foreign. She had grown up in Africa as a child, daughter of... Uh, parents who were in colonial administration in the sort of very last days of the French Empire, and uh, or at least the French Empire is, you know, a, a global hegemon. But she was uh, struck by the just the word foreign and thought about the Foreign Legion, you know, this famous uh, military um, group that you would see in old adventure films often of the 30s or 40s often hollywood films as much as french ones you know gary cooper in uh, i think morocco or no um bogast uh adolf manju in uh, morocco with uh, marlena dietrich and just these films of these you know europeans or sometimes americans in the desert because the french foreign legion will take uh, members from all different countries. And we see that in this film. It's a very international military group. Now, the interesting thing about it, and this is kind of a similarity it has with another film I've discussed recently for uh, Patreon, um, the film uh, Tony Erdmann, German movie from 2017. Uh, this is, you know, 18 years earlier, but it's still part of that general sense, I think, of like a European identity crisis, which you could go all the way back to the post-war era to kind of root this in. But I think it's especially um, present in, in in like post-60s cinema, from like the 70s on, so really the past 50 years. There's this sense that Europe, which was a huge uh, global, you know, I was going to say civilization, but it's really civilizations, because obviously these were all separate nation-states, often at war with each other, but they had this pronounced role in the world and very 
strict defined ideas of their culture and then that got kind of washed away as america and the soviet union rose to power and uh you know just over time i i think there was a bit like through the post-war era there was still the hangover of the war and then there was the whole tumult of the 60s and uh which which itself was very tied to world war ii but after that you know you had this just have this long period where Europe is no longer really central to the world, and they don't quite know what to do with that. So I talked about this a fair bit in the Tony Erdman review, but it's present in Beau Travail in the sense that, you know, this is a military group uh, that is kind of severed from any real purpose. Like, it's a small, um, I think it's called, let's see, a demi-brigade. There are also units described as rapid deployment forces, that the French Foreign Legion would send out to various former colonies to protect existing French interests in those colonies. It's not entirely clear what purpose this unit has in this film. They seem to mostly just train for war without ever having any remote prospect of war on the horizon. So it's a kind of a strange um, phenomenon in that sense. And apparently Claire Denis incurred the wrath of the actual French Foreign Legion in Djibouti where she filmed this because uh, they would show up like uh, on on set basically watching nearby and antagonizing the cast and crew and, and just trying to, you know, make, make the shoot difficult. And according to one of the interviews I, I heard with her, she said that this was because the film had this kind of homoerotic presentation of uh the members of of you know the the fictional unit that it was showing and uh, that then when they saw it they felt actually it was a very good representation of the the legion so <laughs> i don't know any further context than that but that's kind of interesting and the film certainly does have like a general air of homoeroticism that gets i think emphasized a lot there's a great interview with barry jenkins uh, the director of Moonlight talking to Claire Denis and saying that, you know, when he was in film school and they watched this, that was pretty much all anyone could talk about. And that's certainly there, but I think there are other things going on as well, other elements to it. So, you know, we, we were already about like, I don't know, eight, seven or eight minutes into this uh, discussion. I haven't even talked about the uh, plot of the film. Uh, and it, it's interesting because it is based on a Herman Melville short story very loosely, well, somewhat loosely. Some of it follows it pretty closely, but it makes some significant interesting departures. Uh, this is the aforementioned story, Billy Budd, which is like a novella that he wrote and had published posthumously. He never quite finished it. So in the film, the main character we're following is the commander of this uh, Legion unit, named uh, Galoup. He's played by Denis Denis Levant, who was in Holy Motors, a film I've talked about before, and he has a very distinct screen presence. And uh, this film really may be the crown jewel in his career, even though he's had some other great ones as well, Mauvais Song and, as, and, you know, as I said, Holy Motors. But in this film, he's just very tightly coiled as this character who is quite by the book, quite um desperate for it's interesting because he's desperate for kind of approval and acceptance and yet at the same time we we know this through the journal entries that he narrates but 
self-presentation is a little more confident than that. So it's interesting kind of what's going on internally versus externally, which is, you know, something that, again, we get a payoff for uh, later in the movie. But what agitates him in the story presented in this film is that a new legionnaire has uh, entered the, uh, the, you know, the unit. His name is Santen. He's played by Gregoire Colline, and he's a young man, very distinctive looking. And it's interesting, the first scene we have, uh, it's actually a great first uh, opening shot, kind of unexpected if we know what this film is about. It's of a young African woman looking right at the camera and uh, making a kissing sound uh, in sync with the song that's playing. This is part of uh, the film's use of pop music. Really interesting ways. We're getting a little off topic, but this is worth talking about. There's a great Neil Young song used, Safeway Cart. Uh, she also, uh, Claire Denis, uses music from the opera that was adapted from uh, Billy Budd by Benjamin Britten. As I was watching the film, I kind of realized, I'm not sure if I'd ever read that it was based on Billy Budd or not, but um, I didn't remember that. So as I was watching, the, you know, I didn't recognize this music. I wasn't familiar with this opera at the time of viewing, although I've since watched it and reread the Melville story just because I thought that would be interesting to bring into this discussion. But just watching the dynamic between this kind of brutal officer and this underling who he seemed both spiteful of and kind of attracted to, I thought, okay, this this has got to be the, you know, based in some way on Billy Budd. But the funny thing is, I kind of misremembered the what Billy Budd was. Like I remembered another Melville story, Bartleby the Scrivener, about this guy who refuses to do his job and just kind of slowly declines and declines. And I conflated these two stories in my head. So I was thinking that uh, Billy Budd was the story of a guy who refused to do, you know, a sailor who refuses to do any of his duties and is eventually executed as a result. And uh, then as I kind of looked into it, I was like, oh, no, this, these are two totally different stories. So I was actually a little surprised watching this film when uh, Galoop never actually, or I'm sorry, uh, Santan never actually, you know, rebelled and said, I refuse to do this or whatever the famous line is from Bartleby. But uh, no, completely different story. What's interesting about the different versions of Billy Pud, though, is the emphasis they place on different characters. In the original story, I would say it's as much about Billy Budd, the young, handsome sailor who everybody likes, who's sort of an innocent, or, well, not sort of, very much an innocent, doesn't understand the complicated human dynamics around him and eventually gets kind of roped into this plot against him by a claggart, the uh, master of weapons or man of war. It depends, I guess, which uh, description you read of him. And uh, he is extremely jealous of Billy's... Uh, popularity with the with the crew and and or with the uh, the other sailors and uh, there's a strong strong hint of a level of attraction there that he's uncomfortable with this is you know again a story that's received many kind of readings of it as like a, a gay text and uh, I think in Beau it's a little more emphasized there was a you know the 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 exercises the soldiers do they're often right up in each other's faces and Claire Denis films this in close-up and actually had it choreographed um not just as like an exercise but almost kind of a dance so there's that element to it 
in this film and uh, Billy Budd, the the opera was written by several uh, like a gay composer, gay lyricist. E. M. Forster was uh, one of the uh, authors of it. The character has a seething resentment of Billy Budd and eventually tries to frame him for mutiny. And Billy Budd strikes him and kills him. And uh, then the captain, Captain Vare, has to have him executed to you know fulfill the the military discipline that's required of him. And that's, you know, so that's the story that both the opera and the novella are working with. And uh, Denis takes it in a little bit of a different direction in Beau For one thing, obviously, uh, Galoop is the clagger. And there is a uh, overall uh, leader of the unit who he is under, uh, Commandant Bruno Forestier, played by Michel Subor. Uh, and I thought I recognized this guy. I couldn't quite place it, but then I looked up. It. Apparently, he was in Le Petit Soldat, the uh, uh, Jean-Luc Godard film about the Algerian War, uh, where first time he worked with Anna Karina. And this guy is the lead in that, and he actually has the same exact name. So Claire Denis had him take the same name. I don't think they're supposed to be the same character, um, you know, between the two films. But uh, he... His role in this film is interesting. So he is basically established as the equivalent of Captain Vare and Billy Budd, where he is, you know, he he likes this young legionnaire. He even gives him a compliment that's almost verbatim from Melville, where he says, "Oh, you were a foundling. Well, you were that was a great find, or something like that, because he was found on a as somebody's steps." as a baby, an orphan who was abandoned. You were a good find, and the French translation is Belle Trouvé, which is fascinating because that's obviously very similar sounding to the title of the film, which is Beau Trouvé. Beau Trouvé means uh, good work. Belle Trouvé means good find. As this article in The New Yorker that I found by uh, Alex Ross kind of points out. What I find fascinating about that is there's a masculine feminine angle to it. Obviously, Beau Trouvaille is masculine. Beau is the masculine form of Belle. And Trouvaille, that would be a feminine word because it has the modifier of, of uh, Belle. That's kind of interesting that uh, what the character actually says in the film is, is coded feminine and then the title is masculine. There, there's obviously a play in this film between these kind of macho personas and this kind of lurking tenderness and affection between the characters and you know this the the film the direction it goes in at this point uh differs significantly from the novella because they do have Galoop uh set up a situation where Santane is going to confront him and sure enough Santane hits him just as you know Billy Budd does in the in the book but he doesn't die. He doesn't, I don't even know that he falls down. He just disciplines him afterwards. And what's interesting about this is he kind of takes on the role of Captain Vare at this point, because in the book, the captain is the one who has to carry out the sentence and kind of wrings his hands and is tormented between this choice of, you know, military duty that he has to follow and this obvious personal affection and, you know, perhaps in his case, as well as, as Claggart's attraction to Billy Budd. So what's interesting about the film is it centers the film on the Claggart character, on, on Galoop, uh, whereas other versions of this story have kind of used that as the premise, this confrontation between these two characters, and then it becomes a kind of a contest between different 
sort of ideals, or not even a contest, really, because Billy Budd kind of accepts his fate. But, you know, this this philosophical reflection on the the captain's situation of feeling that he has to uh, fulfill the, you know, the sentence on him, even though he sympathizes with Billy Budd and thinks he was set up by this, this uh, cruel, sadistic uh, master at arms. So it's just interesting, I guess, that this film instead of using Claggart as like a plot mechanism um, or, or, you know, giving him a little bit of an aside as the opera does, where it's, it kind of allows him to sing about his motives in um, what this Alex Ross article describes as like a little too on the nose, a little too obvious in terms of his resentments of Billy Budd. I love the fact that Beau Travai places the whole kind of uh, focus of the film, the, the narrative perspective on this character, this awkward um, outsider in a way, even though he is, you know, he has a position of authority, but he never quite fits in. And they make that explicit earlier in the film where he wants Forestier's approval and he resents that the commandant doesn't seem, you know, that interested in him. So there's almost this weird sort of love triangle going on. But again, I think the homoerotic element, um, you know, probably got, ignored for too long in Billy Budd. Now it's almost like too highlighted because there's other aspects to it as well. I think the most kind of potent sense that you get in this film of what Galoop's problem is, is that he's just not comfortable in his own skin. He's somebody who has a kind of seething, writhing passion, this, this intensity inside of him. And it won't get recognized by anybody. And it gets expressed through a kind of ordered discipline. But I would I would say that there's not it, the film isn't exactly positing that as the opposite of his of his passion, whether it's romantic or whatever it is. Um, it's more of it's more that it's just like a different expression of it. Uh, I think you could say a similar thing about John D. Elman. And uh, actually, the, you know, it's interesting. I watched this film shortly, or I, I watched this film shortly before The Master, and I'm recording this uh, discussion of it after I recorded a conversation for patrons about The Master. And that's another film where you have these two characters with this kind of tension between them, this affection between them. Um, in that case, it's more openly amicable before it becomes kind of hostile in the end, whereas in this case, it's it's hostile all the way through. There's never a collection between a Gloop and Santin. And the only part of this film that I really remember seeing before is the ending, actually. And I would say if you haven't seen the film, don't let me spoil it for you. Stop here, because it's a fantastic ending, very unexpected. Um, but, you know, I am going to talk about it here. It was featured in the Mark Cousins documentary, The Story of Film, about, you know, various, you know, film, uh, hi- highlighting various films throughout cinema history. And this might that might have been the first exposure I really had to this film. Um, it, it, you know, it was one that was highly acclaimed, but it sort of lingered on, um, I guess it was pre-21st century, but kind of like, you know, turn of the millennium best of lists and and it's really only recently that it's now being celebrated as like one of the absolute greatest films of all time which i have to say i love the fact that the sight and sound poll now includes a film with this strange scene of this character just like climbing up in a tree in uh, marseille uh cutting off limbs for no apparent reason just this weird obscure little scene 
it kind of signifies to me uh, some of the interesting directions that the list has gone in, what it's willing to embrace, you know, that alongside these grand, uh, you know, cinematic uh, legendary moments that, that are still present on the list, but now kind of intermingled with these odder, more esoteric uh, uh, directions that these these other films go in. Galoop is actually narrating the film, which is it's sort of similar to Billy Budd, except again there, it's Captain Vare narrating it, remembering his judgment of Billy Budd and all that. And in this film too, the, you know, Galoop, uh, or sorry, Santin, uh, does not die. He is uh, found, well, he might die, but we, he is found in the desert where uh, Galoop has sent him to basically march back to camp, and he's given him a compass that doesn't work, hoping that it will kill him en route. So it's interesting, too, that like all the discussion of this film that I've seen is fairly sympathetic to Galoop. He's seen as this very repressed, mournful character, uh, somebody that people are kind of rooting for almost in a way, feeling sorry for him, that he seems to be in love with this other guy and can't express it. But he's really, I mean, uh, you know, if you look at the film at face value, he's hes an absolutely brutal sadist. Whatever his own inner struggles are, he's, you know, forcing this guy to suffer. He ends up in this beautiful scene, and I haven't really even discussed the visuals of this film yet, which is honestly the, the main appeal, really. Um, I, don't, I wouldn't necessarily say more than the story. It's very interwoven with the narrative, but also has its own kind of separate appeal. Um, but there's this scene where the character ends up on like basically a salt beach and he collapses on the shore and is just kind of, it's almost like frozen by ice, but it's frozen by salt instead in this, in this desert. And, uh, he is eventually discovered and brought back. And it seems like he's, he's probably going to survive, which will only further hurt Galoop because, um, he's already been dismissed from the unit for you know the suspicion they found the uh, compass at some uh, see these these kind of uh, flea market almost I don't know what you'd call it uh, where they're selling goods found in the uh, salty area and one of them is this compass covered with salt so other soldiers see this and draw their conclusions I guess that there was a setup there and I think it was already when that when you know. Santan doesn't come back to camp, I think there's already a sense of like, okay, you went way too far in this discipline. And, uh, you know, that they end up dismissing Galoop, he goes back to France. So again, the film is told via flashback, essentially, as we are seeing this character in Marseille, and then uh, also back in Djibouti. And that element of it I think frames it in this kind of mournful way, but also establishes it very firmly. I mean, it would already be Gloop's story, but the fact that Denny has this character be our through line through the whole film, the one who antagonizes Gloop and then also is the one who disciplines him and the one who suffers the consequences for that. It, it gives it kind of a, a focus and a tightness in some ways that, uh, you know, Billy Budd is a little more, um, wandering you know melville loves to go off into uh endless uh similes he's a little less interested in i think sticking necessarily to a singular point of view but uh, this film is all through the experience of 
a galoop. Although we do have those scenes with Santan where he suffers the consequence where he ends up on the salty beach where he is uh, taken and and rescued. And we're not even sure if Galoop knows about this. So that that is a little outside of Galoop's subjectivity. But otherwise, it's it's through this character's eyes. And he has an African girlfriend. He has other things going for him in his life. But somehow, this obsession overtakes him. And again, I think it's yes, I think there's certainly an element of eroticism and attraction there. You know, the film's not particularly subtle about that. But there there's also a sense of deeper insecurity and resentment that I think goes beyond whatever sort of uncomfortable attraction he feels and is, is in a way more about his own lack of comfort, as I, as I already said, in his own skin. And so that leads us to the final scene of the movie. But I, I'm going to wait a second to discuss that because I just want to note, you know, I've been talking so much about the characters and the plot of this film and I do want to mention that like the experience of actually watching it is not nearly so straightforward, um, not nearly so rooted in like character psychology. You kind of piece that together as you're watching, but it's very elliptical. It's very immersive. It's very impressionistic. Uh, the first like 10 or 15 minutes of the film I was like barely hanging on in terms of knowing what's going on. It's it kind of leaps around and you're like, okay, like I'm I knew a little bit about it going in and I was kind of hanging on to some of that as like, oh, okay, is this so so this is the character who blah blah blah, you know, trying to kind of piece it together that way. Um, but but as you're watching it, you're you're just kind of pulled along. And the film really it's it's spine, it's you know, central kind of organizing principle is this kind of rhythmic quality of just things that interest um you know the 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 filmmaker here and are pieced together kind of strung along like odd little sort of misfitting beads and a necklace that somehow still gel together uh, i mean that goes for the musical choices as i mentioned the kind of very eclectic soundtrack uh, the cutting from scenes is often quite sharp. We're going from one moment to another. As I said, we open on someone who isn't even really one of the main characters kind of staring at the camera and and uh, drawing us into the scene that way. And then all of these just incredible scenes where the characters are doing the exercises. They're like ironing their shirts, marching around, um, sleeping in their bunks and so forth. It's just like a gorgeous film to watch, just totally immersive in this environment. And uh, that above all is what characterizes the viewing experience, I think. And, you know, again, it's it's amazing that you kind of come away with it and you're talking about all these themes and characters and and all of this. And in a way, that's that's kind of cool that the film... Uh, leads you to there through this kind of elliptical, indirect manner. But in, in a way, it's also a shame because it's like, well, does that really represent the experience of watching it? This this totally kind of disorienting, beautiful immersion in a kind of vivid fever dream. Uh, I, this film had a very profound effect on me, and it was very much a combination of those two elements of this thematic um, obsession with this character who is, you know, again, has this kind of 
depth to him and this frustrated, sorrowful intensity that's misdirected, turned into aggression. Um, but also just the the style of the film, the the sensory experience of watching it, and those two things kind of weaving together. Um, this is another film like John D. Elman, where I hadn't seen it before. Uh, saw it was on the sight and sound list, thought, okay, this will be a good opportunity to kind of both catch up with it and discuss it and didn't know what to expect. I thought, would this, would I be a little over, underwhelmed by this? You know, is it, is it not going to be necessarily up my alley or whatever? Um, but then just being completely uh, captured by the aesthetic experience of watching it. The Criterion essay by Gareth Shambu mentions uh, another critic, Stephen Holden, who called the film uh, or or described the film as voluptuous austerity, which is just a, a wonderful description. I don't think can be improved on as a, you know a, a sense of what it is, what it's presenting to you. So in those final moments of the film, uh, Galoop is contemplating suicide. Seems like he's probably going to go through with it, and uh, he's holding a gun on his chest and uh, lying in his in his bed he just made it in a very military fashion again emphasizing this discipline and rigor that this character has that he uses to um, feel at home in the world in a way although clearly hasn't helped enough and he has a tattoo on him that says uh, that the camera kind of closes in on uh, as it's as the film is ending that says uh, you know serve a cause and then die and there's a question of, of course, what exactly was the cause here? I mean, again, this is, you know, Billy Budd takes place during the Napoleonic Wars or right in the, uh, I guess, during the Revolutionary Wars leading up to the Napoleonic Wars. And there's a sense, and, and this is even more emphasized in the opera, of like the French radicalism as a threat to kind of British order and sensibilities and uh, that this is, you know, the existential crisis they face and that Billy Budd's uh, personal situation unfolds against this backdrop and they have to, uh, you know, follow the military code and, and execute him in a really peremptory manner because they're at war and anything could happen at any moment and they have to maintain this discipline. There's been mutinies recently and so forth and so on. So that, that cause is clear in that film, although you are in that story, although you could argue, you know, that it's kind of a, a front or at least a correspondence to this kind of psychological tension where they have to maintain a certain order so they don't fall into this uh, kind of uh, love lust that they have for Billy uh, would, you know, be that as it may. Um, there's a larger context that that story takes place in. In this film, there isn't that. Um, you know, so again, like you asked this question, what does this cause this this character serving? There's, it's interesting on the YouTube clip of the final scene, which I'm about to discuss, there's a lot of interesting comments. One of them says they think that the final scene, you know, after this moment is a tribute to American influence on French culture. And the fact that like, you know, it's depiction of the Legion as this uh, really relic of the French, the, you know, the glorious French past that now has no real relevance and uh, is, is overtaken by kind of, you know, American physicality and on all of this. So, you know, there's interesting readings you can have of this film, but I think for myself, um, I love the fact that this is open-ended and you can kind of take it where you want to take it. For me, that tattoo is sincere 
Um, but the cause is not, it's not a national one. It's really almost a, a, a personal one. He's living by a certain code because he finds a fulfillment and a satisfaction, or he did until uh, Santan kind of disrupted this equilibrium. Um, and Santan, I, I should also say, is an interesting character in that we don't get any of his subjectivity, much less than we get of Billy Budd in uh, various adaptations before this. Uh, he is... I wouldn't say a cipher, like the sense you get of him is he's somebody who has a certain vitality. He is not at home in the world either. As I said, in that first scene, we get kind of a connection between him and Galoop, but he, either because of his youth or just some sort of personal trait, has a kind of, um, he doesn't have the despair that Galoop has, at least not yet. And so then Zanid does something absolutely fascinating she the the camera kind of pans over past the tattoo and it looks at this kind of or to the tattoo i think and it's it looks it focuses on this throbbing muscle in his arm as he's sitting there kind of twitching waiting to see what he's gonna do and then bam we cut to the location that we began the film with we're gonna end it here it's the discotheque in africa where uh galoop was one of many soldiers dancing with many women in the beginning in that in that opening scene. Now he's all alone. He's standing against a suite of mirrors and the song Rhythm of the Night, that great 90s kind of techno song, techno pop, Euro pop song starts playing and he's kind of tapping his feet and then he just starts dancing by himself. There's like a moment of hesitation and he goes into it and it's like this incredible writhing a performance with just the camera standing back and filming him there in a very different style. Again, that so much of the film is filmed in close up with like kind of a handheld camera or a dolly movement, kind of like moving across faces and bodies, almost fragmented, abstracted. And here we're getting the whole picture, like a Fred Astaire dance sequence of this character coming out, dancing, just falling onto the floor, jumping around, leaping around. And it's so fucking perfect. It's such a great scene. And again, I'd seen this clip before, um, out, somewhat out of context. And the thing that really struck me about it this time, you know, I couldn't quite remember who it was at first. About halfway through the film, I was like, that that dance sequence, it, it's got to be Galoop. Like, there's nobody else. It can't be any of the other characters. It has to be this guy. That has to be his release. And it is. It's also a death scene. I mean, you can interpret it various ways. There are people who interpret it as being he chose not to commit suicide. This is his commitment to life. Um, it was actually shot to be earlier in the movie, but as soon as uh, Claire Denise shot it, she said after the first take, she knew this would be the end of the film, like it had to be. Um, my take on it is is that this is like kind of the explosion, the, the, the catharsis, the moment of uh, almost sublime exposure in a way before taking his own life a peek under the emo, you know, behind the emotional curtain. Um, and again, it brings me back to that, that passage I read about passion by, by Melville. I, I feel this is a character who expresses his passion through order, through discipline. There's a tendency sometimes to look at those qualities as like a lack of passion or as like an opposite an antagonism to passion, but in some ways they can be an expression of it. And then in this final scene, we see a more disordered version of it. And uh, it's just incredible. It's so good. It's such a brilliant way to end the film. And, you know, you can have your take on it, but I love the fact that it doesn't explain itself. It doesn't say anything. 
it just ends with the character writhing and squirming and then just like leaping off stage, off camera. And that's it. That's the end of the movie, The Empty Room. And, uh, well, what a way to go. This is the rhythm of the night. That's it for my discussion of Beau Travai. Next week, we will continue with the next film on the Sight and Sound list that I have not covered before. And in this case, it's also a film that I hadn't seen before, just like this one was. So that's kind of a fresh, interesting approach, I I hope, for most listeners. Uh, In that case, it's a film that is more highly placed on the director's list than the critic's. So uh, I guess I'll talk about what it is here, because I've already revealed it in my introductory episode to this miniseries season. It's Close Up, the Abbas Kiarostami film. Mm-hmm. 